Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. Amen. You may be seated. As I followed along as you did with John's prayer and as I followed along as you did with uh, Buddy singing and uh, Seth leading us earlier, I was just reminded of how blessed we are as a congregation. Um, this is the first time I've been behind the pulpit to preach in a few weeks, and that reminds me of how blessed we are as a congregation. That we had uh, Mr. Paul Lawing preach for us that first Sunday that I wasn't behind here. and. Uh, he's back at Erskine, and we pray the Lord's richest blessings upon him. We were blessed by his service third summer in a row, and we've been blessed so much by Seth. Seth, uh, let me say on behalf of Session and the congregation, the Lord's hand is at work upon you. Thank you for faithfully preaching God's Word. I was able to sit back there in the back and receive the preached Word, and that's a beautiful thing. With a tear in my eye, so I'm very grateful. Last time I was with you, though, we were in 2 Samuel. We were in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, today we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 12, but if you remember back those two or three weeks ago, I had two images that I held out to you as hopefully helpful images to grasp what was going on with David and also what goes on with us when we find ourselves in sin. The, the first image that I gave you was of that Roman road, Main Street, in a town, a Roman town city called Sepphoris. We don't read of it in the scriptures, but it was right outside Nazareth. And it would have been where uh, Joseph and, and Jesus would have gone and done so much work, carpentry work with wood and stone. I could just envision a cart, a donkey cart, laden with their tools and going a few miles over to Sepphoris. And, and that main street in Sepphoris, and I had the opportunity to see it, and I was just struck by it. Not only was it a Roman road, so it's straight, <laughs> well-built, lasting to today, but it had ruts in it, deep ruts. And those ruts were there because of wagon wheel after wagon wheel after wagon wheel after wagon wheel going down the same path. And I wanted you to have that image in mind because when we sin, we're going down well-worn paths, paths that other people go down, and we find ourselves oftentimes doing that same thing. So I want you to have that image in mind, and I also want you to have the image in mind of a, a small snowball at the top of a mountain that begins to roll, and as that snowball rolls, what happens? It grows. It gets larger and larger and larger until an avalanche. And I want you to have that image in mind, knowing that when we begin to go down that road, that rutted road, 
Sin progresses, and it grows, and it grows, and it can come crashing down. And we saw that in the sordid affair of David and Bathsheba, that which is unfolded for us in chapter 11. Now, chapter 12 is the rest of the story. But remember chapter 11, and I I won't belabor the point, but remember that well-rutted road that David went down and the snowball that grew and grew to become an avalanche. It started not necessarily in sin. It actually started in chapters 9 and 10 where we see King David doing that which is good, seeking to be a king who was a just king, seeking justice in the land, and not only merely justice, giving people their due, but also giving people said covenant faithfulness and love and kindness, giving it to those within the community of faith, within country, and those outside. And we saw David seeking to be what a king should be, just, and a king who extends mercy. And in that moment, David was a target And so are we when we seek to do that which is right. Because the forces of evil, our own flesh, the world, and Satan, hate when we seek to do that which is just, that which is merciful, that which is kind, that which is loving. And so we have a mark on us, and David did. But then we see the sin actually starting in chapter 11, right? And it started in the mind. Well, even before that, it starts with a sin of omission. David doesn't go off to war, as kings should do. He let his troops go on his own. He stayed behind. He surveyed his city. And then we have the sin of his mind. He sees Bathsheba. He lusts after her. And then he nurtures that, right? And, and that, that, that sort of internal sin is also nurtured, is also there in great part because he's discontent. He's discontent with a wife, or in his case, more than one wife. And we know he's discontent because he's given himself over in his mind to somebody else. So there's, a, there's an internal sin, there's the sin of discontentment, and then he begins to mull over that more, and then he begins to plan to take external action upon his internal sin. And in doing that, he pulls others in, right? And he uses others, he manipulates others to do his bidding, to aid him in his sin. And then he, like Adam and Eve in the garden, he doesn't stop with saying, oh, this is beautiful fruit. No, he does what? He takes it and he tastes. And then he discards it. He discards her. He's ready to discard her until Bathsheba is pregnant. And now he's got to come up with a way to cover it up. And so the, the sin is it's growing, it's growing, it's growing, and he seeks to cover it up, and his plan fails. Uriah doesn't, he doesn't play the game. And so David resorts to s- some more scheming, more deception, and, and bad thinking, sloppy thinking. And in that sloppy thinking, he pulls other people into his sin. And you know where that leads. It leads to the death of Uriah. Well-worn ruts down a well-traveled road, a snowball that started small but became an avalanche. And throughout that chapter 11, 
It's as if God's nowhere to be found. We hear nothing of God. But as I said that last time, don't mistake silence, the silence of God, for His absence. Because at the end of chapter 11, what do we read? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now we are ready for 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're not going to read the entire chapter. We're just going to read the first uh, 14 or so, 15 verses. Give your attention to the reading of God's Word. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and then with his children. Children, think about having a little lamb growing up in your house. You got a pet lamb. He grew up with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel. Things fall off the table. The little lamb's going to take care of that food. Eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. Children, how many of you have wanted to hold a little lamb? And lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he, the rich man, was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has, who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Oh, really? Nathan said to David, and I have to revert to King James. Thou art the man. Thou art the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, 
And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. When I look at this chapter, especially the first half that we have read, five words come to my mind that, that, that summarize God's teaching for us here. Those five words are these. Sent. Tell. Pronounce. Succeed. And cost. Sent. Tell. Pronounce. Succeed. And cost. And and maybe the unexpected twist here in this passage, a passage that is clearly about God's judgment upon sin. Maybe the twist, the unexpected twist, is that these words speak beyond judgment to an even greater word. A greater word that's always on our mouths. I mean, we sing it all the time. We say it all the time. And I don't think we really fathom the greatness and the depth of it. And that word is grace. Here are five words that speak, yes, through judgment, but beyond judgment, they speak to grace. These are grace words. Grace, these are words that speak of the unmerited favor of Almighty God who had been despised by the man after his own heart. A man who, in laying in the arms of a stolen woman, had ignored and despised God's grace. David, a sinner like us, needed these five words. He needed such grace. Sent, tell, pronounce, succeed, and cost are words of grace. Let's let's look at the first one. First, sent. The very first verse, very first part of the first verse, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Don't rush past that. Linger, pause. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Sent. It's a word that reveals divine initiative. If we're reading chapter 11, it looks like David's in charge. But then comes chapter 12 and we see God taking the initiative. David would would just remain happy in his sin. But God's not going to let him. God sends Nathan to David. He takes divine initiative. And this is a word that speaks of a grace that actively pursues David to expose David's sin, to convict David of his sin, but then to show David favor. And so easy to go quickly by these words, but don't, dear ones. Nathan's going to come. Nathan's going to speak. And what Nathan's going to say is going to hurt. 
It's going to make clear what temporal judgments and effects God's going to allow that will unfold in David's lifetime for this mess of sin that David has committed and has splattered on so many others. Yes, that. But God could have poured forth His judgments in utter silence, couldn't He? In a just silence, He could have struck down that child. And He could have struck down David. But no, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And thus, there is hope. There was hope for David. There's hope for Lee. And there's hope for you if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. For brothers and sisters, we don't have a prophet. We, we don't have a Nathan. We don't have a, a, an Isaiah. We don't have a Jeremiah. We don't have a John the Baptist. We've got the prophet. We've got Jesus. We've got the prophet, the priest, the king. We've got the prophet that comes to us again and again and again. Every Sunday, the great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, brings you not just a few words. He brings you this holy Bible. He brings you all these words that are His words and about Him. He brings them to you. You have this wonderful opportunity. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, do you avail yourself of it? What glorious hope there is in it. We have the prophet coming to us. We have hope. There's hope for us in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness. There's hope for us, dear ones. There's hope for, there's hope for those of you who are trying to remain comfortable in your sin. There's hope for you who are so far down that rutted road, you, you can't imagine getting out of it. There's hope for you, even you, who want to say with Shakespeare's murderous tyrant Macbeth. You know the story, Macbeth becomes the tyrant king of Scotland. He's killing people left and right, left and right. His, his conscience is getting seared. And there comes a point where he says, I am, I am in blood steeped in so far that should I wait no more, Returning were as tedious as going over. And what he meant by that was he had been killing and been rampaging. He'd been committing all these sins. He was, it was as if he were crossing a river of blood and he's halfway there. And he looks back and thinks, should I repent and go back? Nah, that's tedious. I might as well keep going. Have you ever felt that temptation? Throw up your hands. I'm in this sin so deep. I might as well just go on. Remember this word, if that's your temptation. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Sent, that's the first word of grace. Now here's the second one, tell. Nathan is sent to tell David a story. <laughs> what an amazing story it is, isn't it? I mean, it is fabulous. It's wise, it's ingenious, it's subtle, and it, by God's grace, as we'll see, it works. But first the story. 
I mean, every time I come back to this text and I look at it, I see that he sent to tell and that this, this is a word that uh, points us to God's divine wisdom and to a grace that, uh, that is strategically going to reveal David's sin, expose it, convict him, and show him favor. And the more I think about how Nathan, Nathan approached David, and the more I think about the story actually told, it's more and more amazing. His strategy... His imagery, his timing, his tone reveal something of the amazing wisdom of our God. Our God can deal very wisely and subtly with us, with you. He knows psychology better than the greatest psychologist in the world. And he's working right now. He was working through the prophet Nathan telling his story. Think about it. Nathan talks about a beloved lamb. Who's he talking to? One who had never, never spent any time with sheep and lambs? One who had never cuddled a lamb in his arms? Oh, no. He tells of a lamb to one who had nurtured baby lambs. He tells, he speaks of a rich man abusing a poor man, reminding David of the abuse that he suffered at the hand of rich Saul. Yeah. And, and, and also notice he plays to the king's sense of justice. And I said, back to chapters 9 and 10, where David was seeking to do that which was just, that which was right. And Nathan knows that. And he plays to it with this story. And notice too, and they need to make a little side here. Notice too, I think this story tells us something about how to judge Nathan and Bathsheba in chapter 11. By using this story, brothers and sisters, don't, don't be judgmental against Bathsheba. She was used, she was abused. And if you hear people preaching in a way that's, oh yeah, she, she, she set, him, set him up. Turn that off. Nathan compares Bathsheba to what? An innocent little lamb. And the king abused his position of authority. It's a psychologically astute story. As one old commentator put it, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David even knew Nathan had a sword. What a subtle story. And the story did what? It moved David. Exactly. Praise be to the Lord. It moved David. The sword had slipped in. Or to change the metaphor, the trap had been set. And how does David respond? Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Yeah. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, being very godly, isn't he? As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Exactly, David deserves to die. 
And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. He's calling down judgment upon himself, is he not? Sent, tell. Third word, pronounce. Nathan wasn't just sent to tell a story, as great and wonderful as it was. He was sent to pronounce God's judgment. And you see that in verses 7 uh, all the way down to verse 12. Pronounce. Nathan was sent to declare. Nathan was sent to pronounce divine judgment. But get this, brothers and sisters. This pronouncement of judgment, temporal judgment, was a grace that ironically judged to expose David's sin, to convict David of his sin, and to show him favor. Nathan now moves from subtle to direct. From subtle to direct. From from the trap being set to now the trap being sprung. And notice even in the judgment speech, where does God begin? Where does He begin? Thou art the man, right? Okay. Nathan said to David, you are the man, verse 7, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice where God begins, Nathan begins in this speech about judgment. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Where does he begin? He begins with a sort of favor that he'd already shown David. And so the, the, the question is, why would you sin in light of all these blessings? Why would you despise my words? Why would you despise me? When I've done all this for you. Nathan is underscoring the senselessness of sin. The utter ingratitude of any sin. Brothers and sisters, every time we sin, that is an act of Ugly, heinous ingratitude. Don't tell yourself otherwise. This, this morning in the nine o'clock service, Connie was over here and Connie had in her lap Wyatt. And at this point in the service, Wyatt was facing me and he was kind of giggling. He was happy. He was joyous. I want you to consider that place, that, that, the, where he was, where Wyatt found himself. Wyatt found himself in the lap of a loving mother. And let, me, let me give you a, a, that, that imagery for a, a helpful way for understanding sin. The senseless and, senselessness of it and the ingratitude. When we sin, it's as if we are a bratty child, a wicked child, sitting in the lap of a loving parent. And from that position... Slapping that parent out of anger, out of ingratitude, after and selfishness. Slapping out, striking out from a position of what? Blessing. As a young child, you couldn't have reached the face of the parent, could you? Unless you'd been sitting in the lap. That's what our sin is like. Utterly senseless and the height of ingratitude. But not only does Nathan's speech underscore sin, senselessness, and ingratitude, but it also reminds us 
That though we hope and we do have forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ in this world, and though we hope and we do have the promise of eternal life and to be spared of the eternal consequences of our sins for having all that removed from us, that doesn't mean that God will remove every temporal judgment and every effect of sin in this world in our life. Grace doesn't mean the removal of all pain. Grace doesn't mean the removal of all temporal consequences of our sin. It doesn't. And, and, and notice those judgments, how, how utterly ironic they are. David, you, you, you had a man killed by the sword? What's going to happen to you. What's going to happen in your family? The sword's not going to pass, is it? Uh, David, you stole a man's wife. You did it secretly. Guess what's going to happen to you openly? So where does this exposing, convicting pronouncement lead? Sent, tell, pronounce. Our fourth word, succeed. Verse 13. David said... To Nathan. Okay, when you're reading, you have to kind of think about how should I read this next sentence? You know? And and how might we read this? We could read this this way. David said to Nathan, Well, I've sinned against the Lord. Yeah. Or we could read it, David said to Nathan, I've, I've sinned against the Lord. Are those a proper way to read this? No. How shall we read? David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. You shall not die. Succeed. It's a word about divine ability, a grace that, that irresistibly succeeds to expose David of his sin, to convict David of his sin, and to favor David now and to save him. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 goes like this Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them, will obtain mercy. The, the great preacher, the prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, commenting on, those, on that verse, writes, We must not throw the fault on others, nor blame circumstances, nor plead natural weakness. We must make a clean breast of it and plead guilty to the accusation. There can be no mercy until this is done. What did David do? Did he blame others? Did he say, oh Lord, yeah, no, did a bunch of bad things, but it was Bathsheba's fault. How dare she do what she did and catch my eye? 
Remember, we, we, we know of that sort of language. That's the sort of language we hear in Genesis 3, isn't it? It's the woman you gave me. That's not what David does here. He doesn't fault others. He doesn't blame his circumstances. Lord, you just know I had had a tough week. I had a tough year. I had a tough bunch of years. I've been battling left and right, and that was after I had Saul trying to kill me tons of times. But then when I became king, it's just been a tough, tough job. You just don't know the load that's been on my shoulders. God, can't you understand how I'm so loaded down that when this opportunity was there, I, I couldn't resist? Does he do that? No. Does he plead natural weakness? Oh, Lord, you just know I, I, I'm weak. I'm a guy. My eyes wander, and I just can't con con control. Does he do that? No. What does he do? I have sinned against the Lord. Who does he sound like? He sounds like the tax collector in Jesus' parable. What did the tax collector do? Did he go into this long windbag of a confession? What does he say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. David is not just trying to get off with the least amount of verbiage that he can give. This is just a simple, honest confession that goes right to the point. I have sinned against the Lord. And, and because he's confessing that, what does that tell you, brothers and sisters? It tells you that grace is at work. Irresistible grace was at work bringing David to this confession. May it be with us as well. One last word. Cost. Verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord. Let, let that hit. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Yes, that poor child, born due to no sin of his own, would die due to no sin of his own. The Lord would not stay the effects of the fall. A temporal judgment falls. And yet even recognize this, even in that temporal judgment, that young child, that young boy, will pass into glory to be in the, in the presence, in the hold of the perfect Father. The father David never would have been. But there one think with me here. David's, David was forgiven, but his forgiveness wasn't going to be and wouldn't be granted because or on account of that little precious baby dying. But David's forgiveness would be granted on account of the son dying. The son dying instead of David. You see this word cost, 
Yeah, it's, it's about, yeah, there's, there's, there's an emotional cost that David would, would experience, that Bathsheba would experience here in the death of this precious child. But the cost really is driving us further to that greatest of cost, the divine cost, the cost that's being foreshadowed in this child of David and Bathsheba, this little boy. It's, it's the cost of the death of the son of David. Here in this word, cost, a grace that unfathomably cost our gracious God. The, the words translated you know, utterly, dis, utterly scorned in the ESV here in verse 14 could be rendered utterly despised. And here in that, the amazing gospel, our gracious Father would and did give His only begotten Son to be, as the prophet Isaiah would say, one who would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Our gracious Father would and did give His only begotten Son to be despised by men and to die in the place of those like David who in their sin despise God. Despises goodness. Despises word. Despises grace. That God would send His Son to be that despised one to die in the place of those who would despise God and remove their sins. But even more, Jesus would die and die in the place of men, women, boys, and girls so that David, so that Lee, and so that you, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ today, so that not only would your sins be removed, on the cross, but that you would not die eternally, but rather live. Believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how heinous your past sins have been, no matter how heinous your present sins may be, no matter how long you found yourself in those ruts, No matter what avalanche you have caused in the past or you're causing now, your sins are put away. And like that baby boy of David and Bathsheba, yes, you will die. You will die in space and time unless the Lord returns. But you will not die. You will be in the presence of a gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Did you notice the words of the song that Buddy sang for us? Don't you love that very last part? And with your final heartbeat, kiss the world goodbye. 
then go in peace and laugh on glory's side. And fly to Jesus. Fly to Jesus. Fly to Jesus and live. Every Sunday we have an opportunity, and I hope it never becomes rote for you. Don't let it. Satan would want you to let it. Don't let it. Every Sunday we have an opportunity to publicly confess our sins. And, and if you haven't been used to that, that can sound, seem weird. And it can say, oh, I don't know if I want to say those things. Oh, brothers and sisters, say those things. Confess your sin. Let that guard down. Remove that mask. Be honest before the Lord. Why? Because in that honesty, and when you're looking to Jesus, what do you hear? The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Brothers and sisters, we have already taken that opportunity. We're going to take it again. But we won't sing it this time. Let me pray for us. Father, as we prepare to sing, as we prepare to use a, a version of that psalm that David actually penned after this, after this confrontation, after this, these five words of your grace, after he was con convicted of his sin and confessed, this is the psalm that he penned. And so, Father, I ask that you would now lead us in such a way that as we sing this, we will sing like David, as ones who know we deserve nothing but your wrath and displeasure and yet have this wonderful opportunity again today to confess our sins and look to you for the removal of our guilt and sin and for the removal of our shame, for the breaking of the power of sin and for life, life eternal. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.